Hi, Craig. How are you, Cyril? I'm doing amazing. How are you? Good. I'm right, right in Sausalito on the water. Oh, you're not too far. What am I talking about? <laughs> <laughs> I'm close to the water, but you know, I'm down lower than you. Yeah, you're actually underwater, theoretically. That's true. <laughs> How are you doing today? I'm good. Excellent. Hi, I'm Cyril, your host, and welcome to my podcast that I called I Really Want to Do This. In this podcast, I interview guests from all walks of life and try to understand the various ways that different types of people with different backgrounds and experiences succeed in achieving their goals in their very own ways. Think of the past 10 years in your own life. Have you had a personal goal, an objective? Maybe you call it a dream of doing this one thing. You really want to do that one thing, whatever it may be, but for some reason, you never succeeded in making it actually happen. Well, by showcasing successful achievers and asking them how they did it, I sincerely hope that this podcast will give you some ideas and maybe answers on where to start, how to proceed, in order to actually do that one thing that you really want to do. Hi, everyone. This is Cyril, and today we have a great guest for you guys. His name is Craig. How are you, Craig? I'm fine, Cyril. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. Ah, this is so exciting um, to tell everyone. Um, Craig is a fellow paddler, but we only have known each other for a, a little bit. And this is following a dinner that we had last week. And the conversation was so interesting. So I said, I got to have this guy on my podcast. <laughs> so, Craig, uh, let's start from the beginning. Uh, where, where were you born? Where, where do you live now? And what did you do between the moment you were born <laughs> and now? <laughs> So I was I was born in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, um, during the Second World War, 1942, just before my father was shipped overseas. Mm -hmm. uh, and I lived in Pittsburgh until I graduated from high school. And uh, as soon as I graduated from high school, I knew I never wanted to go back. Mm -hmm. uh, Pittsburgh was pretty grim in those days. It was a steel mill town. It was dirty. And I had an inkling there was more in life than I really wanted to experience there. So I went off to college in Massachusetts and then went off to medical school in New York City. And the rest of the time I spent really uh, on the West Coast, except for a couple of years of working in Australia and a year working in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, so uh, my life uh, was full of student life for a long time since I went both to college and medical school, and then trained for a long period of time uh, to be a pediatric ophthalmologist. Mm. So uh, that's kind of where, you know, my life uh, in a nutshell began and where I've kind of come. And I now live on a houseboat in Sausalito, where I've lived uh, for 40 years, mm -hmm. and where I dare say I feel the most comfortable in my life uh, compared to many other places where I've felt much less comfortable. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
let's go to the very first thing you said that you were born in 42 um, and your dad left for the second world war did he tell me more about this and how how old was he when he left and how old were you were you born just before he left so my father when he left uh he he was uh shipped out with the Seabees uh, to the island of Tinian, uh, where the atom bombs were kept. Uh, he uh, was a medical officer on the island. He was uh, 32 when he left. And when he came home, he was uh, 35. My mother and uh, my younger sister, uh, who was born just before he left, who's uh, 14 months uh, younger than I, uh, we lived with my uh, father's family in a small college town while he was gone for that three-year period of time. And uh, when he came back, um, he never spoke about the war. He, he really never wanted to talk about it. Uh, we moved from this small college town to Pittsburgh, where he set up a private practice of uh, general medicine. Um, and except for the Korean War, where he got noticed that he was going to have to go back into service again, um, he stayed in his practice in Pittsburgh. And it turned out that they didn't take him back to Korea. So uh, his his military experience really was limited to that Second World War period of time. My memories of the time are uh, living with my grandparents. Hmm. Uh, my grandfather was a uh, professor of chemistry and a dean of a small college. And my grandmother was a kind of character who uh, had got on a train to go to college and got halfway there and decided that it really didn't sound like a good idea and got off the train and went home. Um, and she never went to college because uh, it just sounded too frightening to her. And she was a very smart but very funny woman who would do all kinds of crazy things that would be very entertaining for me. And so I remember her always doing crazy things that irritated my grandfather because they were kind of the things that a forgetful genius would do. Uh, so it was a pretty entertaining time, actually. I don't remember it as terribly stressful for me. And my mother was a tough old farm lady. And uh, so she didn't let on too many emotions about how worried she was about my dad. So compared to many people who went through that period of time, I, I don't think my time was very stressful. I think it was, uh, you know, mostly a childhood slightly displaced only because my father was off at war, but uh, it wasn't in any way, uh, didn't have any feeling of deprivation to it. Mm -hmm. And how did you, your, your dad feel when he came back? He was back to normal life? Did he... Like, did you see a change? Well, you were young, obviously, but a change of character? Like, I'm going to enjoy routine life and, and be thankful for the family, for all these? No, my, my father, uh, and, and my father in many ways um, was a counter-intuitive uh, person for me because he lived a life I really didn't want to live. I <laughs> knew early on I did not want to be like my father. Well, you ended up being a doctor. I did. That's the only part of it. Uh, and I fought that all the way. I, that was something that I became after three or four other issues that I failed at, or at least went down the road and didn't get quite where I wanted to be. So, but my father uh, had no interest other than medicine. That's all he wanted to do. He worked 18 hours a day. Uh, I don't remember him ever reading a book, mm. ever. Mm -hmm. uh, he had no hobbies. 
Uh, he did nothing athletically uh, because uh, he said that he'd had an infection as a kid and the back of his ear had been affected and his balance was poor. But I actually think it wouldn't have been any difference. He wouldn't have done anything anyway. He was a sedentary, um, middle-class uh, American man during the period of time when that was a pretty acceptable way to behave. Uh, and his only real interest was what he did as a physician and, um, and the family. Uh, mm -hmm. He had no uh, interest other than that. Um, he was a caring person. Uh, he certainly support, was supportive. But I oftentimes wouldn't see him for days on end. He worked so much that I would go to school and he would be taking calls in the bedroom. Patients were calling him and he would be talking to them. And I would uh, do my athletics and my extra extracurricular activities and come home and he would still be in the office in the evening, still seeing patients. I'd go to bed. And so I could go three or four days. I knew he was in the house, but I actually never saw him or never talked to him. Uh, so in many ways, um, while I knew he was a supportive, caring father who wanted me to do well and, and certainly gave me all the opportunities to do well, um, he was an absentee father. Mm -hmm. um, he, he was not a role model to me in an, in an active way. I mean, it really was uh, the, the negative way that I just knew there was more to life than that way of living. I knew right away this is not the way I want to end up my life in this kind of situation of just working very hard at a job and doing nothing else. It just, it, mm. it made me feel right from the very beginning as I perceived it in my early school years, this is not the way for me to go. Mm -hmm. well, it was how the, that generation was back then, wasn't it? Like hard work, be the provider of the family, not the, the emotional side of it, but just, you know, I'll give you a roof and, and, and bread on the table and, and you should be thankful kind of way. And the mom was providing everything else, the emotional support. And yeah, that's absolutely true. Most of, uh, I mean, my father was an exaggerated example of that because he had these hours that went well beyond normal work hours, but most of my friends had similar kinds of situations. And, and my mother was very supportive, uh, She was a very strong person, very loving person, and was a person who was very intuitive about what went on with the four of us. There were four children. Mm -hmm. She was very sensitive to the fact that each of us were very different. Um, I'm, I'm quite different than my siblings in, in almost all regards, but she was very sensitive to those differences. Um, so there wasn't any feeling that you know, I, I didn't have the kind of support that I needed as a child. It was mm -hmm. really just the feeling that I knew my life needed something more than this. This was not going to work for me. Okay. So how did you feel this? Like, what else did you have in mind? Like, it's not going to be this. What is it going to be? Like, you, you felt it where? Intellectually? Or was it your, like, I'm not meant, like, as a contrast to what your parents were doing or your siblings were doing? Like, I don't want to. Tell me more about this. Yeah, so I think, you know, it, it probably manifests itself in uh, several ways. The easiest way was the notion that I realized that the environment that I lived in, the physical environment I lived in, Pittsburgh, uh, was very parochial and that I knew just from reading and from the kind of input you got from movies and TV, there, there were lots of places in the world that were going to be a lot better than that. So I knew that physically I was going to, 
I was going to do something, you know, different and live somewhere else. For a long time, I didn't have any sense um, of how I would be different. I, I had a uh, kind of unrest about myself, uh, and I wasn't quite sure how I would use this kind of searching part of my personality in a way that would fulfill me. I didn't have a, a way to think about it in a really concrete way, and it only gradually uh, as I got to be in my college years that I really began to feel that I had some feeling of how I was going to cope with this and how I, I was going to be different. Hmm. And uh, the first inkling of that was my sophomore year in college, um, my uh, parents sent my brother and I to Europe. Hmm. Um, my brother was having some difficulties. And uh, so for the summer, we went to Europe and uh, we had a book, $5 a day in Europe. And we wandered around like, you know, every kid does the first time he makes a trip. And uh, when I went back to college, it was as if the whole world had changed. I knew right away that um, international travel, wandering as far as I possibly could, Mm -hmm. uh, and I didn't even have any notion of how far that might be, but I knew that that was going to have to be a core part of my life. And I, I was actually quite restless when I went back to college because I had now had these notions of what could I do to begin to explore the world and still mm -hmm. pursue a career and so forth. Um, and so that was the first step, I think, in, in beginning to identify how I wanted to live. And, um, it's, it has remained a fundamental part of my personality since. I mean, my, my travels have taken me, you know, to 97 countries. Mm. Um, and I've enjoyed traveling pretty much any place in the world, no matter what, you know, the hardships may be. It, that's always been a core part of my mm -hmm. feeling that my life is meaningful when I'm doing those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So you said that, you studied a lot because obviously medic, medical studies are long, but you had this inquisitive spirit about learning and, and searching, right? And then I guess when you started to travel, you, you thought, wow, there's so much more I can learn. And I agree with you 100% that travel will change a person. And I did that when I was 18. I, I was an exchange student in, in Arkansas, as you know. <laughs> and uh it changed my life totally. There's there's a key moment uh, that there's a before and an after. How old were you when you were sent to Europe? Do you remember? 19. 19, yeah. Crucial. Before you started university, was it? No, it was after my first year in college before I was starting my second year. Okay. Isn't that great? I like travels. <laughs> Tell me about your, your personality traits that you, you think you, you had when you were younger and how those evolved. And I'm interested in the ones you think you were born with, like personality traits, and the ones that you grew over time with the situation you, were, you, had, you have encountered. So uh, I guess one of, the, one of my core traits that has always been true in my life and that, you know, I recognized and my mother recognized uh, fairly early on is um, my desire to uh, spend lots of time by myself. Mm. Um, reading, doing whatever it may be, uh, spending lots of time with myself was always rewarding. It was always renewing. 
Mm. And it was never stressful to me. I never could understand why people said, you know, I can't stand to be alone or I need company or I, you know, I just, I'm feeling lonely today. That never really became part of the kind of mental construct of my life. It just, it just wasn't that way. So that, that initial recognition that I really was in many ways, a person who was going to do much better alone for long periods of time. And almost certainly it was one of the reasons why I could study hard in school and why I could really put my mind to certain tasks when I really had to do something over a long period of time. Uh, because I just, I, I enjoyed my co- own company and I didn't need anything else around me. Mm-hmm. Um, a kind of counterbalance at the same time. So that's, that was kind of a confident part of my personality. There was a, a part of my personality that was very uh, lacking in confidence. And that was that until I was about um, 14 or 15, I was the smallest kid in my class mm. physically. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, Pittsburgh was a blue collar town. Sports were a real big issue for boys. Your, your identity had to do with, could you play football? Could you play basketball and so forth? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, until I really got into my junior high school days, you know, I was, I was the kid that always, you know, was the small guy, had a lot of energy, but, you know, nobody really wanted to play with him very much because he was, you know, too small to be able to really compete. So that really uh, became part of my uh, drive to be able, as I, as I obviously got bigger uh, and got older, it became part of my drive to be successful at athletic things. There was a real memory of those days that stuck with me and, mm-hmm. and still sticks with me. And I guess it's, you know, part of the reason why, you know, I can go off and do things that involve endurance and, boredom and pain and all the rest of it because i'm still kind of angry about it mm-hmm. <laughs> that's interesting <laughs> so the definition of of being good with oneself and actually feeling replenished by being alone would would that be the definition of an introvert because you don't strike me as an introvert like i'm a hundred percent extrovert i i get energy by being with other people but you're kind of both. I mean, was yeah, I th- I'm not. A, I don't think I'm an introvert in the sense that you know I enjoy people's company. I enjoy their energy. I certainly enjoy laughing, like we did the the other evening at dinner and uh, sharing ideas and so forth. But on the other hand, I I can just as well after having that enjoyment of that input of energy from other people, I can spend several days in a row pretty much by myself, you know, thinking about other things and, and going on my own. So I think you're right. I'm kind of a mix. I'm not, I'm not a classic extrovert. I'm not as extrovert much of an extrovert as you are. I don't think, although, as you say, we've only known each other for a period of time. Uh, But I, but I, I certainly am not the kind of introvert who cannot deal with people or doesn't want to be with people or can't integrate with them and become part of a conversation and so forth. So, you know, there's part of the personality that has both traits, but my ability to, to be alone and my need to be alone um, is, is very much part of my personality. And as you can imagine, uh, I have a very good relationship with my wife. She's a terrific person, but it, it, there's no question that uh, 
she finds it stressful uh, periodically when I'm in my mood of, now, wait a minute, I'm studying here, I'm looking at this, I'm doing this, I'm listening to that, I'm concentrating on this. No, I don't want to talk right now. Um, so, you know, it's an obstacle at times because I do get really focused on something that I, I am doing by myself. Yeah. And it's, it's, I don't think it's hard to switch back to listening to somebody else. It's just that I don't really want to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when you're, when you're alone in your thoughts, what do you do with your ideas and your thoughts? Do you, what's the output of all that thinking? Do you write notes, books, journals, or, I mean, I'm just thinking compared to me, like every time I have an idea, I have to share it with someone. <laughs> I, I just love to have the feedback of other people. And so I'm interested, like if, if you create so much I, uh, power of, of your mind, is there any, any, any way you found a way to, to out, out, out it from your brain? So um, my profession provides me some outlet um, in the sense that uh, I practice in a university I write scholarly papers, I write books, I've edited medical journals. So there's, a, there's an outlet for some of it in what I do as a profession. Um, on the other hand, there's also outlets, you know, that are outside the profession. And um, I've written books on bicycling and some of the sport activities that I do. I used to write columns for a bicycle magazine. I used to write columns for a sea kayaking magazine. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I've had lots of ways to use those ideas that I think about both in my profession and in my avocations. But lots of the stuff that goes uh, kind of roaring around inside my head probably doesn't come to anything really positive. It comes to all kinds of ideas of things that I say I'm going to do but I never quite get around to doing. Um, I've been saying for years, I'm gonna write a book on uh, 12 famous blind authors and how they continue to be great authors even though they were blind. And I have all the research and the book stacked and hours and hours of work put into it and two chapters to show for that. Mm -hmm. And people are tired of hearing me talk about it. They just want me to get on with it. <laughs> But you enjoy the journey, not maybe the destination is not important to you. <laughs> yeah, that, I think that, that that saying, you know, it's the journey, not the arrival that matters is 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 certainly, you know, something that I, I am akin to. I, I understand the, the meaning of that. And the journey certainly is something that I enjoy. Um, I mean, one of my own philosophies is it doesn't make too much difference Um which way you're walking. The important thing is to keep moving. In that sense, you know, it is the journey for me. I, I uh, as you know, I have a big library and it's got all kinds of different subjects and I can uh, sometimes find myself rummaging around the library, pulling six or eight books out on completely different topics, trying to figure out what it is that my brain right at that period of time really wants to focus on. Mm -hmm. And uh, only when I get a whole stack of books on the desk do I realize that I've just wasted, you know, an hour or 90 minutes enjoying <laughs> looking at the inside of books and saying, gosh, that's great. I'd really like to read this. Oh, but I'd like to read this over here, too. <laughs> <laughs> I like your, your uh, the phrase you just said about walking and just keep walking. There's one I, I listened to last week. 
somewhere was the the person who enjoys walking will walk further than the person who walks to get to a destination and that enjoys the destinations and yeah. it's true it makes the journey just pleasurable you're right uh yeah i think that's that's right uh it, one of the most pivotal um points in my life in terms of my reading uh came at a time in my life when i was trying to sort it out i'd had a difficult personal crisis and there was a a writer uh who had started as a physician but he he became ill with tuberculosis and and never practiced medicine um but became a very good writer in the south named walker percy and uh he wrote uh, very interesting books that had much to to do with the same kind of reflections as the french existential school did in paris but he wrote them as novels and um one of his uh say one of his things that he dealt with was the numbingness of what he called the everydayness of life mm-hmm. and how that can um prevent you from the walking the exploring the mm-hmm. movement and uh, one of his quotes is the search is what anyone would undertake if he were not sunk in the everydayness of his own life Mm-hmm. I think it's a powerful quote. I mean, it's a powerful notion that you become obsessed by the things that you know make up life—the going for groceries, the cleaning oh. the house, the—and—and and, you know, you you can very quickly fill up your whole life with just the everydayness of life, and the search, the kayaking across the ocean, or the riding a bicycle for 750 miles, or going back to school when you're an old man or whatever the search may be that never takes place because mm-hmm. you're just occupied by the everydayness of life and and that's kind of once i read that i knew that was a quote i had to remember and i had to always keep in mind that i needed to battle that everydayness of life mm-hmm. well there's this force that is put upon us from the moment we're a kid like okay you're You're that edge you have to go to school you're that edge you go to university and then you're the adage you have to pass your driver's license and then you have to uh, get engaged to that woman you've been dating and then you have to have a first kid then you have to like you have to there's these have to that are not written anywhere but the that people put upon us right the culture does because we work we live in a society that is a group of bunch of animals and i actually noticed this when i was 25 I did the trip around the world for one year. And after three months, the first three months, I was like a tourist. I had my Lonely Planet guide. And okay, this, I have to see this cathedral. I have to go see this plaza. I have to go and see. And after three months, I was like, well, I want to be a, a, a traveler, not a, not a tourist. And I changed my, it changed my mind. It took three months to get there. And after eight months, just before going back, because it was 12 months trip, I was like, this is what life is all about. Like everybody's saying, you have to do, you have to do. No, I can take a year of vacation and it cost me $7,000. And I guess it's a little bit disruptive because you say, well, I've been taught not to lose my time, not to lose a month, not to lose a year and go on, go on. And you have to buy your first car. You have to buy your first house. You have to, what? You don't have to anything, you know? And it's quite, some people will never feel that. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, some people don't not only don't feel it, I think even if you explain it to them, they would 
think that that was a crazy idea. Uh, mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sure in the case of my father, who is the example of the guy who, um, you know, he, he just went on the signpost of life. You know, he went to college, medical school, started his practice, um, practiced right up almost till the day he died. Uh, you know, from his point of view, the everydayness of life was absolutely the substance that he wanted to deal with. And mm -hmm. he was good at it. Um, yeah. and, and, and perhaps, you know, at the end, he was just as fulfilled as yeah. those of us who feel more restless about life and want to, you know, make sure that we get every last juice bit out of life that we can get. Um, mm -hmm. But, you know, that's perhaps the joy of life too, that there are personalities that are yeah, experiencing totally it in, in different ways like that. But my, my basic, uh, my basic coping mechanism with life is much like yours. And that is that the fundamental energy that I have is restlessness and, and wanting to be on the move and wanting to, you know, be walking in some direction that I may not know what's out there, but I certainly know that it'll be interesting around the corner because I've never been there before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love it. I want to go to the second part, but I want to go back to uh, when you described how you could be in your, your library, your own library that I see behind you and go pick up one book. And it's a personality type that kind of wants to see everything at the same time. You're so curious and so spontaneous in your curiosity. Uh, did you see it ever as a negativity? Like in some way it could be a little bit scattered or did you say, well, this is how I am. This is how I think. And were you okay with that? Or did you want to change at some point? Yeah, it's interesting. I, ha I have a very close friend from my college days that, that, uh, says that he's never seen anybody quite uh, deal with this the way I do. And he described how in college, I would sit down and uh, I could be studying for a couple of hours physics and never get up out of the chair and never say a word and not do anything. And then suddenly, you know, bounce out of the chair down the hall of the fraternity house, find a soccer ball so I could kick it a few times up and down the hallway, you know, go talk to somebody for a few minutes and then go back to the chair and sit down and do the physics all over again. And my friend says he's never seen anybody turn the switch quite like that, mm -hmm. you know, from, you know, doing a very quiet focused activity to, you know, all of a sudden becoming this energetic, slightly crazed human being, you know, who has to let the energy out. And uh, that that's, been true all my life. I mean, I, I've known that I do that all my life. Um, and so, you know, there's some balance between those two extremes. Um, mm -hmm. Do I waste time by, you know, picking out six or eight books at a time and not really reading them? And, and I'm, I've got markers all over the library of books I've read 50 pages of and little notes that say, You've got to go back to this book because there's an idea there that you were almost to, but you got, you know, way laid over here because there was something in Persian literature that really was more interesting. Absolutely. I mean, it's frustrating. You know, I know that there's stuff that I've started that I'll now have to restart because I've forgotten it, you know, and I, on the other hand, it's a great pleasure. I love looking at the library. I know there are books in the library I have never read. I know there are books in the library I've never opened. But I love them. I love them because someday I hope that I'll stumble on them. Even if I only look at a few pages, it'll be well worthwhile. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. All right. 
Thanks. I think you get a good good grasp on your your personality and your background. And let's go to the second part. Um, the podcast called "I Really Want to Do This." So I'm going to ask you about a moment when you actually felt that I really wanted to do this feeling, and what was it, and and how did you go after that feeling? So so I have but. I have two episodes that I would say I really want to do this and they really occupied me and I really put all my energy and focus into them for a protracted period of time. And the first one was uh, when I decided I really did want to be the first American to ride Perry, Brest Perry. Um, I was in the military. I was it's a bike, a, correct? Bike ride. Yeah. Yeah. It's a 750 mile nonstop bike ride from Paris to the English Channel and back. And, uh, it was started in the 1890s. Um, it was actually the first bicycle race in France. It predates the Tour de France. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was uh, sponsored by Dunlop. Uh, Dunlop was a dentist in Ireland. Mm -hmm. And uh, he invented the pneumatic tire. Right. And uh, he knew that uh, the only way he was going to you know, make the pneumatic tires financially successful was to make it useful for the bicycle because there weren't very many cars in this period of time the rudimentary car was not a big issue and uh, so he he realized that sponsoring a race was something that would be a way to show that with a pneumatic tire you could really go great distances because in those days bicycles were a wooden rim people were just wow. riding on a wooden rim or they were riding on a piece of rubber that was just tacked to mm -hmm. the rim with with no air under it so it was very it was a very hard ride so dunlop uh sponsored the, this uh race it took some time to get it off the ground because uh french medical society said everybody will die so they held it up in the courts for a while and uh <laughs> it, it was <laughs> the history of it's quite interesting uh at any rate it, it was a, it was a serious professional race for some time but after the second world war it became um more of a uh, amateur event and it was held every four or five years. There was some change in there. And uh, it was for a long period of time, a European event with very few people outside of Europe. Although an Australian uh, did win it um, back in the thirties, um, a guy named Opperman who I later met when I lived in Australia after I had done this um, uh, ride. So at any rate, I, I, I became obsessed with the notion of, you know, could I really ride 750 miles and, you know, and survive mm -hmm. this and, and do reasonably well. I was, I, was, uh, I was stationed in San Diego at the time. I was in the military during the Vietnam War. I'd been drafted to be a, a Navy flight surgeon. Uh, I'd been a war protester, so my existence in the Navy was not exactly what you would call harmonious. Mm -hmm. um, so most of the time I was escaping by either playing rugby or riding my bicycle. Mm -hmm. And so I got really obsessed by this and I started to ride. Um, but all I did was ride. I didn't think about a lot of the other things. You know, how was I going to get food and drink over 750 miles? What would happen if my bicycle broke down? Mm. Um, you know, I just didn't, I didn't, I didn't put the whole thing together. And, um, uh, I got the, uh, my bicycle on a plane. I flew off to Frankfurt. And when I got to Frankfurt, my bicycle wasn't there. Uh, and so 
uh, I failed to ride. I mean, it was, I just, I, the whole thing was a failure. Uh, so and why didn't you go to Paris? Wait, to Frankfurt? I went, I went to Frankfurt because I could get a military uh, flight that was very cheap. It was a. It, right. They had to, there's a base over there. Yeah, there was a base and, and I, I could go, I, I think it cost me $20 to fly to Frankfurt and then I could fly back to Paris. Um, anyway, it, it, you know, I, I was, it was a complete bust and it was good that it was a complete bust because I was, I was not prepared. I had not thought through the whole issue whatsoever. Mm -hmm. And so I, 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 uh, I was released from the military. I came back to San Francisco to do my ophthalmology training and uh, in my third year in ophthalmology, they, they were coming back up. It was on a four-year cycle. And I decided I desperately wanted to do it. Even if I had to quit medicine for a year, I wanted to do this. I was going to prove to myself I could do this. So I went to the chairman of the department, and I told him how important this was to me. And he was a very good guy. Um, I really uh, respected him a lot and, and still respect him a lot. And he said, oh, you don't have to quit. We'll work that out. He said, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll put you on a rotation so that you can train in the summer and you can be working in the clinic in the daytime, but you won't have any night call or anything. So, so let, me, let me pause for a second. Why, why do you think this came to a point where it was so important to you that you could even quit your, like your studies or your job for this, for just a 750-mile race? Why? Why, why is this obsession? Do you know? Yeah, so, uh, you know, I'm sure everybody who really has an obsession, if they're asked that question, you know, there are all kinds of layers to the answer. I can give you a superficial answer. And then, you know, if you start digging deeper, it's going to get more complicated. So the superficial answer is, um, you know, I had uh, become fairly good at bicycle riding. I was winning some local bicycle races. I began to identify myself as a, as a potential bicycle um, success story, even though I was far too old to really be a, a real mm -hmm. bicyclist at that, at that period of time. But also, if you go back to that original statement that I told you about when I was a kid and the smallest kid in the class and you know, kind of mm -hmm. having a chip on my shoulder, mm -hmm. I had a chip on my shoulder about this. I really felt, you know, I've really got to prove to myself I can do this. I, I really, I've never done anything that's this demanding it's time for me to show myself that I can really do this. And uh, it's kind of like the answer I gave you a minute ago when you said, you know, um, aren't you a little worried that, you know, running around your library is kind of scattered and you don't get things done. And I said, you know, I have this project, this book I've been talking about for years and it isn't done. Mm. I really didn't want that to happen with Perry Breast Perry. I, I really didn't want to think 10 years later you really talked about it the whole time and you never did it, bub, yeah. you know, let's get on with it. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I became, um, I became really obsessed with it over those four years. I mean, I thought about it all the time. Um, and so in the, in the summer, I, uh, I would get, I would go into Golden Gate Park and I would ride the bike from six o'clock till midnight. And I just go around the park. And then on the weekends, I would ride from San Francisco to Mendocino and back on Saturday. And then, I, and then I would ride on Sunday, somewhat less because my legs were given up by then. And I would, I would maybe ride 100 miles or 150 miles. And that way I could get about 700 miles in a week to prove mm -hmm. to myself that I really could, in a short period of time, do 750 miles. 
It also gave me time to realize that I was going to need some support. Um, and a friend who owned a bicycle shop in San Diego agreed to go along with me and took some equipment. Um, mm -hmm. A girlfriend at the time uh, agreed to go along. She was better in French than I am. Oh, my French isn't terrible. I, I knew that she'd do better. And she was going to help me and support me and so forth in terms of driving a car and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, I, I began to think about it a little bit more clearly than I had before. Um, and so I did. I went in 1975 and uh, I had a few problems during the, the uh, event. Um, I was riding the first carbon fiber bicycle ever made. It was made by a company called Teledyne in San Diego. And it was a prototype and it had a uh, aluminum bottom bracket. Uh, and the various parts of the bicycle were just glued into this. And uh, that, of course, if you're going to ride 750 miles, it's not the strongest construction because the torque on it over a period of time is, is going to begin to loosen the bottom bracket, which, which it did. But worse, the guy who put the bicycle together for me decided that he would put um, a very lightweight uh, spindle on my pedal to lighten the weight of the bicycle. Uh, and 600 miles into the ride in the middle of the night, I fell to the road. Wow. And I realized that what had happened was that the spindle on the pedal had sheared off. The heat from just bicycling hour after hour had sheared it off. So um, I, was, I was, you know, 100 miles, 125 miles from the finish. And, um, you know, I was thinking, you know, oh, my gosh, what's going to happen here? And the friend who was the, um, from San Diego was allowed to be at the various rest stops, the places you check to go through, but he wasn't allowed to be on the road. So I got back on my bike. I put the pedal in my, uh, my bicycle jersey. And I pedaled the 25 miles to the rest stop on one pedal. One leg. <laughs> kick, kicking it around. And when the, when, the, when the pedal that was broken, when the part of the, of the bike would come around that had the broken pedal on it, I would just kick it with my foot. And so I did 25 miles like that. And of course, people were passing me. I, I, was, I was, you know, all upset because I'd done pretty well up until then. And uh, he put on a new pedal for me. And uh, I'm, I'm kind of desperate at this time. I'm saying to him, come on, please get this. Get, I got to get back on the road. These people are, and he said, no, I, I really got to check your bike. You know, it's probably got some other problems. I said, no, 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 come on, we got to go. So I got back on the bicycle and I was just getting to the bottom of a hill where the, uh, where the race ends in Paris. And as I shifted down to climb up the hill, the entire rear wheel disintegrated. And what had happened was the derailleur of the bicycle had bent when, when I went down with the original accident. So when I moved it over into the position where you put it in order to climb the hill, the derailleur went right into the spokes of the rear wheel and it mm -hmm. just sheared them. Mm -hmm. So I'm sitting by the roadside. It's about... Um, I think it was about 10 or 12 miles to the finish at this point. And it's daytime now. And uh, I'm, I'm just distraught. You know, you can imagine I'm, you know, 12 miles away and I'm thinking this is, this is just unbelievable. So I'm standing there and I'm thinking to myself, you know, 
I've been doing some cross training. I've been doing some running. I can run to Paris. I can get there. I can run. So I was taking the number off my bicycle, the you know number I would need to show that I was a finisher. And I was stuffing it in my bicycle journey when this very nice Frenchman came out of his house. And he said to me, in French, of course, but he said to me, are you in Paris, Brest, Paris? And I said, yes. And he looked at my bicycle and he said, oh, it's terrible. He said, uh, are you allowed to ride another? Can you complete the ride in another bicycle? And I said, yes, that's allowed, but I don't have another bicycle. And he said, wait, 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 wait. And he ran in the house and he came out of the house with his wife's bicycle with that had a basket on it that she used to sh go shopping. At the market. <laughs> so it was, of course, too small for me. So I couldn't sit because I my knees would hit my chin and there was a bell on it. Uh, and the bell would ring every, you know, 30 seconds or so because, you know, I would go over a bouncing part of the road and the bell would go. <laughs> and so... I rode the last 12 miles of Perry Breast Perry on this uh, child's bicycle. Uh, <laughs> and when I got to the end, uh, there was a TV crew there that had interviewed me beforehand um, because there were five of us from the United States. It was the first time that a, a group from the United States had gone. There'd been individual people tried to do it, but there were five of us. And the TV had interviewed me beforehand and the same guy was there at the end. And, he looks at me and he sees me coming on this bicycle and he, and you can see there's this quizzical look on his face. What in the world's going on? And he, he actually said to me, he said, did you ride the whole way? On that? <laughs> and I was stupid. I should have said, yes, of course. Yes. <laughs> so, so that was my adventures on Perry bus Perry. And as you can tell, I was so obsessed that, you know, I was going to make it no matter what. Um, and I, and I never wrote it again. The other guys, you know, who rode uh, at the same time, several of them went back and, and rode other times, but I, I never went back and wrote it again. Awesome. Tell me about having achieved that, what kind of feeling did you have and how was that instrumental in other um, moments in life where you, you used that as a stepping stone? That was, that, that was a really important stepping stone for me. It was the first time in my life that I had um, done something that I considered um, difficult and it was outside my um, program of study. I was always a pretty good student. School wasn't that tough for me. So that, that never really felt like it was an accomplishment. That was just, as you say, one thing after another, first grade, second grade, third grade. This is the first thing that I'd ever really done where I felt you're really out of your envelope. You really have done something that stretched you. Uh, you ought to be proud of yourself. And I did. I did feel proud about it. And uh, I'm sure it's the reason why, you know, and I later took up kayaking because uh, my, my knees gave out. Um, I began to get arthritis in my knees. And uh, so I couldn't bicycle anymore. Uh, and so when I took up the kayak, I really did have that uh, energy, that um, support, that memory from Perry Bus Perry of, yeah, I can go to the Fairlands. Yeah, I can cross the Sea of Cortez. I've, you know, I've done these things. Ah, and that's, you know, and that, that's maybe a false sense of security because, of course, the skills are different and the, the, 
dangers are different and so forth, but it was definitely a, a stepping stone for me um, and a confidence builder. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I decided when I was 67, I decided I was going to go back to graduate school, even though I was, you know, going to be an old man in, the, in graduate school. It helped me there, too, because, mm-hmm. you know, everybody said, why are you doing this? You know, why are you going to be with a bunch of kids trying to get a master's degree that you're not even going to use? Yeah. You know, you know it was the same feeling. Eh, I've done this before. Yeah, I, I, don't worry. I, I can do yeah. this. It, it'll be painful. It'll be difficult. There'll be some bad times, but yeah, but I'll get through it. I love it. I think it shows how we we actually have no control over the unintended positive consequences of what we decide to do. And I believe that no matter what you chase, if it's motivated by the, the right ideas and the right feeling in you, it doesn't matter what you chase. It's going to be positive for you. And then it's going to trigger something else. What was the second thing that you said you wanted to talk about? Like, I really want to do this. Was it to go back to studying? Yeah, I thought the, the fact that, you know, the studying was not an athletic thing. That of, of Most of the things that I've done where I really wanted to do this uh, in my lifetime have, have been athletic or have been extreme travel kinds of things, you know, sailing to Antarctica or something like that. Uh, but going back to school... You know, that that, you know, at at a at a senior age, nobody wanted me, you know, uh, I would go to colleges and say, I want to study Arabic. And they'd say, don't be ridiculous. You know, you're 67. We don't want you. You're not going to be a professor. You're not going to make us famous. And I had to really look around to find a school that would finally take me. And I didn't care what I studied. I just wanted to go and study something I didn't know. I just wanted to get out of medicine. I wanted to do something different. And, um, you know, I was fortunate that uh, my wife actually found a place for me to go and study ancient Eastern thought and Sanskrit. Wow. Uh, it was absolutely, it was, it was a terrific year. It was, it, it uh, you know, it was all consuming. It, it, it required me to go back and be a student where I studied till midnight, every night, every weekend, you know, my wife and I used to take uh, two hours one night a week to have a, a nice dinner or a nice movie together. The rest of the time I was always studying and I was always behind. Mm-hmm. And I realized that I'd lost a lot of the skills I used to have as a student, had to get those all back again. Um, but, you know, it was, it was something I knew nothing about. We were reading ancient Chinese, ancient Japanese, ancient Indian literature and translation. And I was trying to learn Sanskrit and it's, it's a really hard language and I'm not very good at languages and, so, you know, I, I, you know, everybody says, well, if you aren't very good at languages, why the heck did you choose to do that? And I, well, you know, if you're, not, if you're not very good, you ought to try it. <laughs> I love it. I'm actually trying to learn Norwegian. It's, it's ridiculously hard, but I'm, I'm enjoying the, the, just the process of trying to learn something, the, the, the stimulation yeah. of half an hour a day to say, okay, okay, why, how do I learn this? How do I do this? <laughs> okay, you've mentioned a few things that are so cool, like sailing to Antarctica, all that stuff. I want you, I want to understand all the things you've done because my bucket list is really already pretty long. I don't know if I'll finish it, but 
tell me, like, do you can you take a minute just to list all the cool things that you think you've done? Like, I want to know. Um, so I guess if, if we just start, uh, you know, I haven't done the, the really long distance kayaking that you did, but my wife and I, uh, you know, we kayaked the Kid Claudies from uh, Mykonos to Santorini um, mm. and uh, in the fall and, and ended up doing it in very big seas with big Maltemi winds blowing. Um, and then we, uh, friends of, of, of mine, we crossed the Sea of Cortez and back uh, at a Christmas time right after some storms. Um, so that was a, another big uh, kayak trip. In terms of uh, trips that we've taken where we're, we're just kind of exploring and seeing some of the unusual parts of the world, uh, there, there, is, there is a sailboat that goes from uh, South America to Antarctica that you can uh, you know, pay to go on. They take nine people at a time. And uh, so we, you, know, you cross Drake's Passage in a sailboat and uh, it ended up being you know, very big winds with everybody kind of locked down for a couple of days because you know the sailboat was getting knocked all over the place mm. but to go to antarctica and to be there in a sailboat and to have the silence of the boat and let the snow come down on this little boat instead of some cruise ship mm. and, to ex and to experience the birds and the wildlife in the water down on this very intimate environment of a sailboat made it just magical it was worth you know every bit of discomfort getting there Um, and then uh, we we did a, a trip to uh, to northern Chad in the Sahara to see the uh, the rock formations that are there that are really famous uh, and uh, you know it, it's it's a really desolate part of of the Sahara but it's a, a basic part of the old caravan route that used to come down from Libya. And you see the ruins from the Libyan war and so forth that went on there because the Libyans tried to, uh, under Gaddafi, tried to occupy northern Chad. They got, they got beaten by the, the local natives who were very tough. So, you know, that was, a, that was interesting. And my, my, uh, my professional life has allowed me to go to some places that are kind of off the map. I've, I've spent four or five times in Iran um, lecturing and teaching. Uh, And that's an opportunity a lot of people don't get mm -hmm. just because it's hard to, you know, get to. And I've spent the last six or seven years before the pandemic uh, working in uh, remote parts of China, teaching mm. particularly out in the western part of China, which, which I like a lot. Um, so tell me about how cool and how inter interesting it is to meet people from different cultures, from like all the countries you mentioned. Iran, Chad, you know, South America. I, I, for me, I think the most interesting is the human interactions between people. Like you could go to a place and it's fabulous, fantastic. The, the landscape is amazing. The sunrise, sunset, but the interaction and the conversation we have with people. So tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, so you, you probably can tell that there's two subsets of travel in my life. One, one has been based on my uh, academic life and one's based on my, you know, just pleasure travel. And the, the way in which you meet people in those two different ways is distinctly different. Mm. For example, 
when I go to Iran or I go to Saudi Arabia or I go to, you know, wherever to lecture and to teach, uh, I'm already seen as the important person coming to their culture to give them something. Mm -hmm. And so the conversation is uh, already stereotypically set up in the sense that there's respect of the locals because of the knowledge that you have. And so the conversation for the first couple of days is oftentimes quite stilted because mm -hmm. it's about information they want from you about how to take care of a baby with its particular problem or various questions about medical care that you're going to help them with. And it takes a few days. Um, and sometimes it takes multiple trips. I, I spent four years going back and forth to the Tibetan plateau to a small hospital uh, working on a blind children's problem. And it wasn't until the second or third year that I really began to have interchanges with the local doctors that were on a personal level rather than a professional level. Mm -hmm. So that we are now sharing our thoughts and aspirations and, you know, um, their, their lives were opened up to me. And so, you know, for many of the professional trips, it takes a little bit of time for that, mm -hmm. that interchange to occur. On the other hand, when you travel and you're, you're the, the tourist or you're the adventurer, you're always asking people for their help. You're going to them asking mm -hmm. something from them. And I think the conversation there gets started in a, in a very different fashion because you know, you're, you're very much trying to endear yourself to them. You need their help. And of course, when they give it to you, it's so rewarding and so uh, fulfilling. Uh, there's a lot of positive input right away. So I think, you know, there's several different ways that you can uh, interplay with people when you travel, but they're all fascinating. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, I've only had two or three really bad episodes traveling in my entire life and all the places I've gone where somebody would say, you've gone to all these places and they're dangerous to go to and, and you were you robbed? Were you mugged? You know, all this kind of stuff. And, and the answer is no. You know, I mean, you, you can go all kinds of places. I mean, I was in Iran, you know, when the, um, when the assassination of the physicists who were involved in the nuclear program in uh, Iran took place on the campus where I was lecturing. And, uh, I, you know, my local Persian friends took care of me. They got me out of there, took mm -hmm. me to the airport, said, you know, we'll get you on the plane here. Don't worry, you know, Never went through passport control. They got me on as a VIP, you know, and it was all mm -hmm. taken care of. Uh, yeah. I love it. Three questions. We have to go to conclusion, Craig, because we could speak for hours. And I think we'll, we're going to have more dinners of those. <laughs> <laughs> before you go, before yeah. you start out. <laughs> But the first question of the, the conclusion is, I, I'm, I'm doing this podcast because I want to inspire people to have uh, that I really want to do this feeling. They actually already have it, but they don't do it. And what, what advice would you give them if they actually want to start the trigger on making it happen on what would be the one thing you would want them to tell them? 
you know, I, I, I never really thought about this too much until I, uh, I was in Navy flight surgery school. And one of the things they talked about is why, why uh, young, really uh, athletic kids who are really good at flying prop airplanes have trouble when they go into jet school and then they are asked to learn to fly the jet onto an aircraft carrier. And one of the things that people talk about is fear of failure. Mm. And, uh, you know, you're doing something that's at such a high level and there's so many people behind you now thinking about you and saying what a great chap you are that you're in this flight school that the fail is, is to be, you know, not only a failure for yourself, but it's, you know, this horrible feeling that you've let all these people down. Um, mm. my, my own feeling about myself, and I, I, I don't know to what degree it, it holds for all the rest of people, is um, the biggest thing that, you know, holds me back is fear of failure. Mm. Um, I have to always convince myself that even if I fail, it's still going to be worthwhile. Um, mm -hmm. And that's a very big, that's a very big hurdle for me. I'm so driven to be, you know, to succeed at what I want to do that the thought of failure is almost paralyzing at times. And I just have to forget about it. Mm -hmm. And if I'm, if I'm having a bad time trying to train for an event or part of a trip is going bad, I have to forget about all that. I have to really just put that aside because it, it can be paralyzing. And I think for a lot of people, that's what holds them back is that fear yeah. that I'll put a whole bunch of energy into this. I'll get a whole bunch of people excited about this and then I don't do it. Oh, that'll be awful. Mm -hmm. Well, it's actually not so awful anyway. Yes. As, as I was telling you about Perry Brasparia, I mean, my first, my first attempt was total disaster, partly because of me and partly because of other events. So, mm -hmm. you know. well, I mean, it's, I totally relate to this. I always wanted to play guitar. <laughs> so I started the guitar. Blah, blah, blah. I study, I study. But you play the guitar to play for other people, like to play in front of other people. And they want to hear you. Yeah. And I was always terrible because I was never really good at singing and playing together. So I stopped and I stopped. I tried again. I stopped. And at one point I said, what? I'm actually just going to do it for the pleasure of gratte in French, which is scratch. I like to scratch those chords and do it for myself. And it's the same for painting. You want to paint... But you don't want to start the painting that is going to look ugly. So you actually don't paint. But look at kids and they just paint, you know. So lose the fear of failure and, and go back to being a, a kid <laughs> who doesn't care about the result. Yeah. I, and there's a, little, there's a little twist to that fear of failure, too, that, uh, you know, the feeling that um, not just the fear of failure, but that somehow you weren't meant to do this. That why, why did you do this? Why did you waste this energy over mm -hmm. here? Um, I decided maybe, uh, 25 years ago, I wanted to learn how to weave rugs. So I, I went, I went off to weaving school and, uh, it was run by this very nice Scandinavian woman in Mill Valley. And, uh, I was still kayaking. I was racing and, um, we'd gone out to practice for a race and I was about five minutes late to the first weaving class. And I walked in and there was this nice lady at the front. And then there were seven women. There were no men, of course, because, you know, mm -hmm. in the United States, men don't weave, mm -hmm. unlike traditional cultures. So I walk in and the woman who's trying to teach, she looks up at me and she's startled. 
by the fact that, you know, I'm a man. Partly because the way my first name is spelled, she couldn't tell whether I was a man or a woman when I registered. And partly because she's just used to seeing women. And so she says, as I walk through the door, oh, a man. Mm -hmm. We had a man here once, but he was here for stroke rehabilitation. <laughs> so I'm standing there already a little bit unsure of whether I should really take this up because do I really want to be thought as of a weaver? And that, you know, I don't have any skills at sewing or knitting or anything. And then she's making fun of me because I've walked in the middle of her teaching and I'm thinking, boy, I really should just turn and walk out the door. Mm -hmm. And six weeks later, when the class was over, the woman who'd been sitting next to me, a very nice young woman who'd been helping me said, I don't understand it. She said, you're kind of an idiot. You don't know how to do any of this stuff. You don't know how to tie the knots that all of us know how to do, but somehow you know how to make this loom work and I can't make it work. And it's very frustrating. It's not fair. <laughs> uh, well, who, who puts that on, on us that we're not supposed to try things that we're not supposed to do? Like, yeah, yeah. well, uh, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of cultural notions about, you know, men, women, yeah, what yeah. they are and aren't supposed to do. I mean, all we have to take it, just, just look at the way women play basketball now. Mm. When I was in high school, women played basketball, but they never ran across the court. You know, the, there were three on one side of the court and three on the other side of the court, but they weren't allowed to run because they might die or something. Now <laughs> you watch Stanford women basketball. Oh, wow. Yeah. I wouldn't want to play against them. My goodness, are they great? Yeah. And you know, yeah. That's a lot of the result of a lot of women saying, hey, you ought to support women's sports and women yeah. can do it. Go right ahead. I love it. Question number two of the, the conclusion side the reveal of the song. Um, I definitely use songs and music in general to cheer my mood. And I've asked you to listen to a song before we started this podcast. Can you give us? The title and what, what is it? So the title of my song is Summertime and it's, uh, you know, from Porgy and Bess. And uh, the reason it's very important to me is uh, I'm, I'm passionately in love with most music, but the music that has always given me great comfort and great energy and can Bring me to tears. Wonderful emotional tears is opera. I, I adore it. Um, and Porgy and Bess uh, was, was the first so-called opera, light opera, that I saw when I was 13 years old with my family. And um, my, my family weren't interested in opera. And this was a light musical kind of variety uh, production. Uh, but that was the stepping stone for me to really become interested in, in opera. And um, I sang in a small uh, professional singing group in college and it was the song that I auditioned with mm. um, and got into the group with. Uh, and, and so it's had a long history with me and I, and I, I find it uh, just such a rich, full song. Um, not only just because of the words, but because of the music, it, it's just, I can hear it anytime. I can hear almost anybody sing it. I can sing it myself and, and it always rejuvenates me. Mm, fantastic. I'll find it. I'll find the link for the listeners. I'll put it on the notes. 
I love it. Thank you so much for sharing all this. Uh, where could people find you if they want to know more about you? And um, are you on any social media or you have a website or a book they can buy or what? How can they get more of you? So <clears throat> there's not any 80 year old man who's very good at, at social media, as you well know. So the answer to your question is very quick. I have absolutely nothing on any electronic format that will help anybody whatsoever. Uh, I see Facebook as the evil empire. I refuse to deal with them. Mm -hmm. um, when they wanted me to register for the, for the regatta this year on Facebook, I said, I can't do that. I won't do that. But they were nice enough to do it for me. Uh, so that's, that's not going to work. Uh, you know, I, I've written medical textbooks. Um, I've written bicycle books, there's magazines and so forth. But the, the short answer is, you know, there probably isn't any real way to follow me because uh, A, I'm not practicing anymore. Um, so I'm not really at the university. Uh, I'm a little bit, but not, you know, in any way that anybody could follow me. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just an 80 year old guy trying to make sure that the last few years of my life are still interesting and fascinating. And I'm not just putting in my time. Mm -hmm. Well, keep sharing all your ideas and your thoughts and all, all your energy because uh, the world is better for it. <laughs> and thank you so much for this podcast. I think everybody's going to be very happy to listen to your, your ideas. Thank you, Cyril. It was Thanks, good talking to you. Thanks to our guest, Greg. Thanks all for listening. I'm your host, Cyril. And remember, life is an adventure. Live it. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Thanks. Well, thanks, Cyril. I appreciate it. I love it. I, I'll edit very fast and uh, I'll send you the link so you can share with all your social media followers. <laughs> yeah, not <laughs> likely, right? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, Greg. Have a beautiful afternoon. Take I'll care. Okay, bye-bye. Cheers. <laughs>